0: Once upon a time, war was an organized thing. Princes met on battlefields, armies arrayed against one another amidst banners whipping in the wind, borders were redrawn while valiant soldiers and clever generals made their names and fortunes. Yes, all this time there were also uprisings and rebellions, insurrections, leaders were overthrown through civil unrest, and empires crumbled, but the designation War was reserved for a clash between armies. But the end of World War I set in motion a cascade of events that would change the definition of war. The Treaty of Versailles brought an end to both the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman Empires, inspiring all those formerly subject peoples like the Syrians and the Armenians to think of themselves as political entities rather than just ethnic groups. Some like the Saudis were granted vast kingdoms at the negotiating table, others like the Kurds were delivered from Ottoman rule only to find themselves subject to brand new governments in Damascus, Baghdad, Tehran, and Istanbul. So nationalism flared, ancient rivalries reignited, arbitrary borders were hastily drawn, and new resentments were sown. Wars were still the province of nation states, but a great many people had seen the promise of liberation only to have their hopes dashed. Now in the aftermath of World War II, the European colonial system finally collapsed under its own weight. Liberation movements flared from Africa to Indochina. The peoples of these diverse lands were not soldiers in armies, they were subject peoples rising up against decades of foreign rule. And they didn't form battalions, they engaged in civil disobedience and sabotage, fighting asymmetrical skirmishes in alleys and cafes, while a revolutionary class of diplomat spoke for their movements. So a new definition of war evolved. And so it was between France and its territory of French Algeria. For 130 years, North Africa was governed from Paris, but after World War II, the French hold weakened and the National Liberation Front organized and strategized a resistance movement that quickly engulfed the nation. Police and government officials were the first casualties in a guerrilla campaign that became a conflagration as larger and more indiscriminate targets came under attack. The French military, under the command of a ruthless colonel, responded with a familiar litany of colonial brutality, mixing deployment of infantry, large-scale arrests, ambushes, and torture to root out the leaders of the resistance. The film goes from the macro scale of global politics to a micro conflict in Algiers, and finally, to a conflict confined within the space of a bricked-in hidey hole. It'll be peace at any cost when we watch the 1966 neorealism film, The Battle of Algiers.
1: Bienvenue à Friendly Fire, le podcast du film de guerre qui n'a pas peur de montrer la brutalité des deux côtés et en effet la façon dont la guerre depuis les deux côtés de leur humanité. I'm Ben
2: Harrison. Ah. (laughs) I'm just going to take the zero. (laughs) I'm Adam Pranica.
0: Je m'appelle Jean-Rodric <laughs> uh,
1: Où est la bibliothèque, Jean?
0: <laughs> what, where is my library?
1: Yeah <laughs> I don't understand uh, uh, I'm making light of how, oh, oh. how uh, remedial my French is Comment vous appelez-vous? No, your French was quite good, I thought I blew a couple of uh, a couple of words in there as I as I read that back that two clause sentence that I took like thirty minutes to translate earlier today. <laughs>
0: I was uh, I was impressed with your confidence.
1: You just got to throw yourself in. That's why people are better at at uh, second languages when they're drunk. You know they're not uh-huh. questioning themselves as much. <laughs> and I'm I've got the and you're drunk the drunk hubris of a white guy <laughs> making a podcast. Uh huh this was a hell of a movie
0: yeah what was your guys'
1: experience of it i mean it's so different from so many of the films we've seen in so many ways it's uh it was kind of refreshing uh from that standpoint like it's really refreshing to see a movie that really gets into the story of both the good guys quote unquote and the bad guys quote unquote um you know, you worry when you go to watch an old movie like this that it's going to be... You're going to have to work to stay interested.
0: And I didn't have that problem here. Adam, you watched it just recently. Was that your experience too?
2: I don't agree with you, Ben, on the lack of challenge it took to to keep focused. I think, I think part <laughs> of that... Why would you
1: start watching it at 8 a.m.?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the time that I watched it was the issue. Like, I think i I may have just been accustomed to the format of a war film that does a lot of like character introduction and you know the building of plot through character but this film right away begins in in kind of a newsreely way and it kind of anonymizes the people involved and does the character work over a very long period of time you don't get like the 15 minute Uh, set up for people to get to know them and to understand their goals you instead are just dropped into these skirmishes it daisy chains these vignettes throughout and it does that in a way that like i'll always be on the side of the oppressed in these conflicts but like without a charismatic leader on either side i found it hard to like really really ride for one side or another does that make sense
1: well, I don't think that the movie is trying to make you really ride for one side or another. I think that's kind of the thing that that I thought was so interesting about it is that it's it it shows that like both sides wind up compromising on their on their values and in order to like advance their cause.
2: Well, I know what the movie was about and what it was trying to do. <laughs> I'm te- I'm trying to tell you how I am as a viewer and and how I am flawed in that way. Hmm.
1: Well, I'm not going to argue with you that you're flawed, Adam. <laughs> uh,
2: I think I think that
0: yeah, you're the or, the movie is organized around basically dates. Like every vignette is um, title carded with this with basically a date which has no significance to us, right? Like March 14th, 1957. Mm-hmm march 19th 1957 all the dates happened in 1957 and like i couldn't even tell if the dates were in chronological order after a while i was just like are you just throwing dates at me and and they're not significant dates it's just you could have said one week later and and i and i the other thing that i noticed that was interesting from the standpoint of watching a foreign language film is that most of the film was dubbed
1: yeah it's not shot with sync sound so everything like i think all of the sound is added later,
0: and so it wasn't. I didn't get that feeling of like the dis, distinctive voices of people. They that they, there mm. there was kind of a like everybody had a closed mic in the studio sound. Yeah, and then the real confusing part, or if not confusing, at least like it took a little bit of extra thought, was that from our standpoint, watching it with subtitles, people were speaking both in Arabic and French.
2: I am
0: and within the context of the movie itself when they switched from arabic to french and back that was an important part of the story because the the rebels would be speaking arabic with one another and then would slip into french when they thought somebody was listening or they used they used their fluency in french to confuse the the french army but they were you know they normally didn't speak it and all of that was lost. Yeah, it would have
1: been cool if they'd gone to like a, I don't know, serif versus sans-serif font yeah. or something <laughs> with the subtitles.
2: A nice papyrus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, papyrus, the font of North Africa.
2: <laughs> but that was
0: that was weird for me to, to have to switch my brain from just trying to read the subtitles to also understand like, oh, they just switched to French and that signifies... That, you know, like the the language difference between the between those two cultures was also a character in the movie that I had to be aware of. I think the time confusion
1: is also partly the fault of the fact that the movie is told in this nonlinear way where it's like the like the opening scene is like them hiding in the walls and it's like. You might as well have a narrator go like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> "That's me." <laughs> how do you think I got myself in this situation? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's non-linear, but I, as far as I could tell, only in that one situation it starts. Right, it starts at the end, yeah. and then it and then it it works its way back, right? And yeah, just, you
1: get back to that at about the two-thirds or three-quarters mark.
2: Hey, my name's Ali. You may be wondering how I got myself behind this tiled-in wall. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. Let me take you back. <laughs> well, I, you you guys
0: hit on something really interesting. I think one of the interest the interestingest things about this movie, your natural desire in the in in watching a thing like this is to side with the oppressed, you know, at, because we're watching the movie more from their perspective than from the French perspective. Right. At
2: least in order we begin with them.
0: Right. We are, yeah, we began with them, and, and I, I think we, we definitely see more character development on the Algerian side and more we're more keyed into their struggle. And also because the French struggle in this movie is a colonial struggle, an, an oppressive struggle, and the, and the Algerian one is a liberation struggle. If everyone is using illegal and immoral methods against one another— how do you watch a movie and root for anybody? I mean, everybody in this movie, there are scenes where they're pulling dead kids out of the rubble of explosions perpetrated by both sides. And it's sort of like, you don't really rejoice. And, and yet this movie was, I think uh, en- enormously popular within the context of revolutionary movements around the world. After it came out, this was supposedly Andreas Bader's, uh favorite movie of the founder of the Botter Meinhoff gang.
2: Hmm.
0: So this movie itself was like a revolutionary flag that, that people throughout, or, you know, that, that movements throughout the sixties, seventies and eighties, uh, like IRA and PLO. I mean, this was like a, it's, it was almost a instruction book.
1: Yeah. It's uh there's a, an interesting section on Wikipedia where it talks about some, some kind of notable screenings and, uh, on the other side, there's, uh, there was a screening in 2003 at the Pentagon, and the flyer for it read, How to Win a Battle Against Terrorism and Lose the War of Ideas. Children shoot at soldiers at point-blank range. Women plant bombs in cafes. Soon the entire Arab population builds to a mad fervor. Sound familiar? The French have a plan. It succeeds tactically but fails strategically. To understand why, come to a rare screening of this film.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is at the Pentagon.
1: Amazing, right? Yeah. Bring a lunch. That is like the least pentagoni language I've ever read. <laughs> well, I know, like, ever sound familiar? <laughs> That's ominous.
0: <laughs> yeah. They sure sound like they have a lighthearted take on their own foibles. The leader guy, like the head of the paratroopers
1: that comes in to, to squash the rebellion, was himself a freedom fighter in, in France during the Nazi occupation. That's a really intense background for somebody who's there to be the boot heel.
2: One of the things that I thought about when watching the paratrooper guy take command was like, why don't the French recognize their hypocrisy as occupiers here? Yeah. You were talking about their history during World War II being only 20 years before this Algerian uprising. Like, what is that about?
1: Yeah, I mean in some ways the film is about the incompatibility of being like a free and open society and also an imperialist society That's something that that character never seems to like really reflect on, you know,
2: yeah
0: Did you notice that basically from the arrival of the paratroopers? There was about five straight minutes of this movie that was completely copped by red dawn Mm. The paratroopers marching into town. Yeah, uh, the leader of the paratroopers having a big meeting with all the officers, saying your methods are not working. Here's what we're going to do now.
1: I feel like he even had the same sunglasses in red. He dawn. He had the
0: same sunglasses, the same beret. When they were marching into town, it was the exact same scene, and it was too. It was too much. Like it increased my awe at Red Dawn because they were doing a like a mad reference to this film as as i was watching it i was just like and now he's gonna say this and he did and i was just like this this is amazing like red dawn just totally bit the rhyme and i think it was homage right i think they just
1: absolutely so crazy for a film as didactic and (laughs) one-sided as red dawn to, to bite and and pay tribute to a film like this which is really riding the fence in terms of you know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys
2: i don't know if that observation makes me like red dawn more or battle of algiers more In <laughs>
0: <respect>. <laughs> but that that struggle is in red dawn also like the 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 cuban officer the whole time is like i used to be in the rebellion and now i'm fighting rebels you know that was like you're you're describing like that was the that was the problem here the uh, french officer in that press conference was really pushing back at the reporters who were kind of saying like, oh, well, you know, basically accusing him of, of being an oppressor, and he was like, do we wanna be in Algeria? If we do, then this is what we need to do, and if you call me a Nazi, well, remember, I was a freedom fighter during the war, and if you call me a, you know, if you call us like oppressors, remember that some of us were in Auschwitz, and he's, he was really, he was pulling that uh, that card that the Israeli army pulls sometimes, which is, you know, it's kind of a kind of a logic that we hear a lot these days, which is I was oppressed. Therefore, I cannot be an oppressor. Right. Um, that's, that's very popular language on the internet now too. And the Israelis use it and, and he used it here, which is like, you know, we're, we're the ones, we're the ones who have suffered oppression. And so all we're doing now is defending ourselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, I mean, as, as long as we're comparing to Red Dawn, we can also talk about, like, the, the tactics that the Rebels use, because I think in, in Red Dawn, you're seeing them attack, like, exclusively military targets. There's not any collateral damage when the Wolverines do a raid in that movie, whereas in this movie, it's like planting bombs in discotheques and cafes and stuff. The tactics that the rebels are using are not like big H honorable necessarily
2: and there's no ramp up to to how grotesque the tactics become there's no like interregnum of of a kid taking the lug nuts off of a jeep and having the jeep wobble off of its tire and and crash harmlessly like it escalates all the way up to back shooting immediately like from jump
0: like within the logic of terrorism like this this movie doesn't explore it very deeply and i think that the logic of terrorism i was surprised actually because i always think of like the philosophy of terrorism having been something that was developed primarily in the late 60s early 70s and this movie was made in 66 about a conflict that happened in the late 50s And yet it seemed like the logic of terrorism was fully fledged. That it was just like, well, uh, we have no access to high-powered weapons. If you would like to give us your uh, bombers, then we will happily give you our baskets. Which was a great line. But you're right, Adam. There wasn't any, like, letting the air out of their tires or or tying their shoelaces together. It was just like, (laughs) we're going to you know we're going to plant this bomb in in a cafe where people and and plant a bomb in a cafe have a woman plant a bomb in a cafe yeah and then the filmmakers are going to like languidly scan the cafe at uh, and let us really get into all these people having enjoyable conversations with each other they're all just like peaceful gentle people having a day <laughs> The first bomb, the woman that planted it, we get to see her look around this cafe and take in, like, drink in all of the people and the children and how, how uh, like, what she's about to do. But her face never registers exactly regret. And we never get a sense later that, that she reckoned with it any, as anything other than a righteous act. It was a lot to chew on.
2: Yeah, there was never really a moment of doubt depicted either in either Ali's choices in delegating, you know, women and children to do this work or in the women and children themselves in carrying it out.
0: And with Ali, he was clearly from the very beginning and just, you know, the the way he was portrayed, he was just a fanatic. He just had a, he had that kind of, I used to be a street criminal and now I'm a revolutionary and i'm just going to take the the hardest line on everything because i'm a revolutionary and i also have never read a book so i'm just i'm just a soldier i'm an angry soldier and in every revolutionary movement there are always people like that and they are the heroes but they're not ideological as a street criminal he was just a nothing but as a revolutionary he's a star so he's got no incentive not to be a not to go for it but there are other people on the Algerian side who are more philosophical, who are the, the brain children of it and who are, who have strategic plans. And we watch them try and rein Ali in and we watch them kind of, you know, have a bigger project in mind. And, and it's, it's one of those people that makes that bombers versus baskets line. He's kind of like the, the leader of the movement, right? The leader of the movement. Right. And that, but that's the only moment in the film where we see the kind of terrorist justification put into human terms, like religion is never really spelled out, right? There's no, no one on the Muslim side ever says or suggests for a minute, anything like killing Christians is not a sin, right? Which is kind of what we, we hear, at least we hear from, from the U.S. Army now or, or in this like great Christian versus Muslim struggle that Osama and George Bush engaged in. Right. No one ever explicitly says like these murders, there's no blood on our hands because Islamic side of it isn't, it, it isn't as important to them either. This is more of a, this is a freedom fighter argument, right? It's a, it's coming from a global uh, socialist people's movement.
1: That language is so interesting, like how portable it can wind up being. Like if you go to Northern Ireland, the, you know, the like Catholic murals that you see on the walls, like employ a lot of the same language and like identify common cause with Palestinians and and other like oppressed peoples all over the world. And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's really heavy to see that like in any context, it's like a skin that you can put on your movement, I guess.
0: I mean, it was a global justification that all those groups were aligned with one another because they were struggling against a common enemy and that common enemy was colonial capitalism.
1: The other thing we haven't really talked about yet is that the the paratroopers are are here fresh off of uh getting their clocks cleaned in Indochina.
0: Right. <laughs> and it's true. That's true. They had just lost Dien Bien Phu and handed the Vietnam War over to the Americans who at this point are just beginning their their wonderful I mean his, historically this is a crazy moment because a lot of countries in africa are gaining their liberation in the in this period from various colonial masters right and we're we're ramping up the vietnam war but we're also this is like heavy heavy cold war stuff right now this is uh, the the movie begins eisenhower would be president he and khrushchev are head to head on a in a nu- nuclear missile race and then kennedy is president during the during the kind of two-year events that where it's unclear exactly what's going on i mean when the when algeria gained its independence kennedy was still alive so geopolitically this is like a small part of a much larger narrative that's going on globally
1: the way they hint at that like talking about like waiting for the un to determine whether they have a you know a case or whatever i feel like that's a really interesting story like like appealing to diplomacy and politics and having that appeal just be like totally in the bag for the other guys because you know the french are on the security council and <laughs> it's like yeah why why would the uh, all the powerful countries that are involved in the un care about the cause of algeria <laughs>
3: Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby,
0: Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more.
2: Yo, what's that show called again?
3: Heat Rocks Deep Dives into Hot Records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun.
2: there is an uprising in place before he comes onto the scene. And so my question is like, what was that?
0: At the end of World War II, I think a lot of these, I mean, this is the same, the same story in Vietnam. Vietnam was a French colony. It was invaded by the Japanese. In fighting the Japanese, uh, promises were made to the Vietnamese that they were not just fighting the Japanese, they were fighting for their freedom and then after the war the french said oh we meant your freedom to go back to being a colony of ours and so the liberation struggle had already started during the war you know ho chi Minh was able to say you know actually we did a pretty good job of helping you kick the japanese out of here and i think we're just going to keep going in that direction (laughs) so i feel like the the struggle in algeria which had been going on for you know, a hundred and twenty years at that point, or more. I feel like after the war, there was a tremendous momentum globally to finally throw off the the shackles of the uh, of colonialism, and that was a big part of how the Soviet Union was exerting its influence globally. It was going to all these places and saying, "You're not just trying to throw off your colonial masters; you're trying to establish a a new kind of socialist global." enterprise and so i'm not exactly sure why in 1954 the algerian movement suddenly coalesced i'm sure there was a sparking point i mean if you look at the number of countries in africa that gained independence and became countries sort of for for the first time rather than territories i mean it's a list as long as your arm it's basically almost every country in africa and that was all happening and there and all those revolutions were also proxy fights between the United States and the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, I mean isn't Algeria still like a pretty close knit ally of the Russians? Like all those tanks and stuff at the end of the movie are Russian tanks.
0: Yeah, I, now Algeria is a Islamic state. I'm not sure if they are if they still receive a bunch of arms from Russia as much, but they were part of the Soviet the greater Soviet sphere for most of the Cold War and they were also a place where groups like the PLO and the IRA and the Red Army, they had training bases in Algeria. They would go there and that was like a safe haven for them as after they were kicked out of Lebanon or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's it's a huge amount of territory, this country. I mean, like this this movie all takes place in the city, but the it's the biggest country by, by uh, area in Africa
2: the film makes a great case for the size of this territory with its use of people there are so many people in this movie all of the sets are packed
3: with extras
2: and people who are milling around or they're waiting to go through a checkpoint or they're throwing rocks at the french troops like the scope of production i thought was really incredible in this film
1: You never have that problem of like the nightclub feeling a little too empty to be a believable nightclub or yeah, like the riot, not really quite feeling like a real riot because you could tell they only had like 80 people to work with.
2: It was like the rebellion was claustrophobic almost. There were so many people on, on either side of it. Definitely.
0: It's crazy. There were scenes, you were certain you were watching newsreel footage. And in fact, it was all staged for the film. Like where, where, you, how you can make a film where like an entire city is rioting, and they're just doing they're just doing it for your movie. Pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, also like when they blow up cafes and stuff, like there are actors really close to the explosions.
2: Yeah. The, the all of the pyro stunts seem really dangerous.
1: Definitely, OSHA would not have signed off on the on the plan here. <laughs>
3: No, office safety isn't really
0: a joke. Have you guys ever been to a Muslim country?
1: Yeah. Uh Nigeria for me. And I guess Ethiopia is like somewhat Islamic, but not totally. Yeah, right. Part, uh, part. I mean the part the part of Nigeria I was in was Kano, which is like super, super Islamic. Like the you know, the city basically shuts down after dark because there's not that many places you can go drink, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's something that only happens in the like Christian quarter.
2: My wife and I took the ferry from Gibraltar to Morocco for like a day trip, but I don't know if that really qualifies as immersion.
0: No, but you've been into a souk or I mean, you you know what, what the Medina of a Arab city is like. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, can you imagine fighting a guerrilla war in a, an environment like that? I mean, it's it's... I think a thousand times worse than fighting a guerrilla war in the jungle because there're a billion places to hide in a city like that. You would you would almost have to be prepared to have tremendous collateral damage because how do you how do you fight in a place where that's just like such a um, such a crazy jumble.
2: There's so little low ground and so much high ground too in a in a city that's built that way. So right. many blind corners. At least a jungle is semi opaque.
1: It's like a piece of Paris, like, grafted into an ancient city in this weird way.
0: Yeah, because there is a European quarter.
1: I mean, I'm looking at it on Google Maps right now, and the the Casbah is, like, so much denser looking than the rest of the city. The, like, level of detail goes up by 10x on that part.
0: You know, culturally, this is a very difficult film, particularly when you think about it, we're going through a period right now where the language of revolution is kind of back in fashion. We went for a long time where your typical, I mean there's always going to be some college students who are wearing black berets and handing out the socialist worker on the street corners. But it's now very much more in fashion to talk about to talk about the United States as though it is an like Uh, unredeemable but the 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 things that make it patriarchal and exploitative and um, economically exploitative stuff that is and racism that's baked into the way the united states kind of does its business people now are talking about it as though that invalidates at a high level the american experience and the only thing that we can do is kind of undergo some kind of revolution, either, either like a widespread cultural revolution or an actual revolution. I mean, I hear a lot more people talk about that stuff um, now with no irony than I have in a long time. And in watching a film like this, that is, that sort of bookends this global struggle, right? The global struggle to, to free the masses from the oppressive overlords. I think a contemporary viewer could watch this and really feel allied with the with the logic that the freedom of the masses is a a noble struggle and that nobility justifies any excess in the pursuit of liberty. That's the logic that the Algerians are using in the film we're blowing up kids, we're committing all the same exact atrocities that the French are, that we're were furious at the French for doing. But we're justified because, you know, like in the words of Red Dawn, we live here. And that alone makes a kind of, by any means necessary argument valid. I would be very curious to watch this movie through the eyes of someone who is 25 or who very who very much now feels strongly that that we're again in a period where that logic because i hear now also a lot of i hear often a kind of um the ends justify the means argument being used to uh to accomplish the end goal of a different society that people now perceive is like the is our greater project we're trying to to revolutionize the way that we do business and so whatever it takes to get there even if it even if it involves like on a street level kind of compromising our our principles but looking at the algerian war in its in a broader context it's really confusing both what came before algiers and what came after
1: well yeah i mean i think that the that like idea that the ends justify the means is rebuked in this film like they do not look away from the moral compromises being made on both sides and i think if like sequentially like the french definitely do the first like indiscriminate bombing when the police captain and his buddies drive their citroen into the into the casbah latest late at night and leave a bomb on somebody's doorstep but you know when that When that lady is looking around the cafe at at the babies and the, you know, young students hanging out and when the other ladies in the discotheque or whatever. I don't think those scenes are in there for any reason but to show that like really horrible things were done in advancing the project of Algerian independence. I don't know. Like I think that like the best thing I ever heard on on that is that there are no ends; like you never finish politics. <laughs> like there are only means, so the means better be humane and uh, conscientious of the value of human life and stuff.
0: Except the conclusion of the, of the film is that is this kind of triumphant orgy of uprising that ends up producing the Algerian lib- independence. So we
1: yeah, but it's almost agnostic about whether the terrorism helped that or hindered it or what like they suddenly all come out with their flags and it's it's a different story you know yeah it 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 works quicker and and more effectively than leaving a purse full of plastique under a cafe table
0: right there are those questions asked like why now like wh- after after the fln was defeated by paratrooper guy there was two years of relative peace and calm and then just out of nowhere the whole country erupted in revolt. And at that point in time, the early sixties, the French public opinion had changed so much that there was a lot more support within France for the revolutionary cause. But you're right. It it did kind of almost explicitly say this basically isn't related or, or only tangentially related to all the violence of the fifties.
1: It's an interesting message. I mean, I think that the, like what you have to keep in mind, Also, is that this is a bunch of Italian filmmakers taking Algerian money and working from a book written by an FLN guy. All of the meaning and and messaging is lensed through the fact that like the filmmakers are Europeans. Like Italy took over the country next door.
0: (laughs) That's true. The context on either side of this is that after that revolution, the FLN did become a thing again and post algerian revolution the fln took charge of the country Yeah, well it's just such a strong brand it would be a shame to (laughs) it's a great brand right i mean and and it and it and i think it did have all that authority that came from the fact that those that the fln members the surviving ones could claim to have been you know the freedom fighters all along
1: yeah i was into revolution before it was cool
0: (laughs) but the fln took charge and effectively made Algeria a one-party state like authoritarian state yeah all the way through the 60s 70s and 80s until there was an Islamic political revolution where they instituted a a one-party authoritarian Islamic state so from the moment that the French left Algeria became more or less a closed society and like we were saying before a place where they were offering safe haven for what we would describe as international terrorists but also like they were in the soviet sphere of influence but they were not uh, they didn't try to join the global community let's say and no. i don't know i don't know what you could say about whether or not the lives of the of the algerians were improved in the handover and that's this awful colonial uh, conundrum you can actually look at the demonstrable evidence and say like, were people's lives improved by this? It seems like it kind of went, Algeria became an impoverished and authoritarian country. But then that suggests, I mean the counter to that, that suggests that you're asking the question, well, wasn't it better when the French were in charge? (laughs) Which is a, you know, which is like the, the counter argument to anti-imperialism. And it's, that is a question you don't want to have to, You don't want to be tendering, but also, you know, it's a lot to wrestle with.
1: It's like pulling a knife out, you know? Like, you you stab someone and then pulling the knife back out is the thing that actually lets them bleed
0: out. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing, uh, do you guys know about the Barbary pirates? Have you heard the phrase? Sure. Uh, I've read a couple of books involving them even. So- Novels, not like real books. (laughs) Yeah, like uh, Master and Commander kind of style books. Yeah. But the Barbary pirate pirates are from Algiers basically. And for hundreds of years, the Barbary pirates were the scourge of the sea. They en- they engaged in a total raider culture where they just they would seize your ships but they would also come on land and capture your entire village.
1: Didn't like Louis XIV
0: sell all the Huguenots to them as, as
1: galley slaves.
0: This happened many, many times throughout the centuries where the European powers were so pitted against one another that they could never ally against the Barbary pirates because they each country would kind of make a treaty with them. Like, okay, you're not going to attack English ships now. Right. And then, <laughs> but you know, but we would definitely want you to attack French ships. And so Europe was never able to to mount a com, a combined defense against them. Well, the, the the Barbary pirates were slavers. It was a switcheroo from the from the slave trade that we normally talk about because they enslaved Europeans and took them to Africa. And over the course of hundreds of years, the Barbary pirates enslaved a million or millions of Europeans. And it's interesting. There's a American connection to it too did you know that Morocco was the first nation on earth to recognize the United States of America in when we declared our independence from Britain? Yeah, that was bigger than the oldest international relationship we have is with the country of Morocco. But the early United States was somehow, and I've I've never understood this story, but like the first military adventure that the U S Navy ever went on was over fighting Barbary pirates in like 1801 we fought two wars in the Mediterranean in the early 1800s against Barbary pirates so in 1830 when the French finally went into Algeria and took it over and became and and, and began this colonial process it was in the context of 400 years of Algeria basically invading all french coastal towns and and enslaving the population and taking them back to africa so there was a little bit of a there's some context to that initial relationship that is not just that france went in there looking for laban's realm
1: in a weird way reminds me of like winding up not really knowing what to do about the fact that we have troops in iraq like we kind of went in there without without a plan like we, we had like a, spe- a couple of specific goals but no no like plan for wrapping it up and maybe that's sort of what befell the french in north africa is like let's go tackle this one problem but then like that seems to mean we just need to like install ourselves here permanently
0: well and i think the difference there is that france once they got there they treated algeria kind of like australia in that they shipped off sort of lower class workers and prisoners and sort of other europeans that they didn't want hanging around
1: all those toilets that they had that flushed the wrong way
2: the fixtures it all draining clockwise sir. oh that's
0: right out <laughs> and then they also treated it kind of like south africa in that there was very definitely a apartheid culture but And this is the crazy thing, and I don't think we would be able to, there's no way for us to understand it really, but at a certain point in the 19th century, Algeria, the northern coast of Algeria, because Algeria was never pacified, but the entire coastal area actually became a part of France. It was not a territory. It wasn't thought of as occupied by France. It was actually a contiguous part of France as far as they were concerned politically. Jean-Paul Sartre was born there, an entire population of French people who could trace their roots in Algeria back a hundred years. Yeah, it was considered integral to France. And that was true even during the the period where this film is set. So those French paratroopers aren't thinking we're going into this foreign country to keep these people down from their standpoint. This is France. Right. And has been since 1875 or something.
1: There's so much about, like, where this film is positioned in history and where the events are positioned in history that are amazing. Like, the idea that Ali LaPointe is a draft dodger. I guess, does that mean he was a draft dodger of World War II?
0: Or maybe Vietnam?
1: But, like, that's really interesting, like, that, like, they considered it his duty to go defend their country when, like, he lived in a part of the country that didn't want to be part of their country.
0: (laughs) The problem is it's not analogous to anything, right? You want to almost say like it's analogous to Quebec wanting to be separate from Canada, but the Quebecois are also imported into
1: Canada. And they also drink Diet Pepsi and eat Mae West for breakfast. So, I mean, (laughs) in Northern Ireland, I was like, can't you guys just get along? You're basically the same. Like you know, just like the second you take like one step outside of it, it is so hard to to get your head around the grievances at play.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, you know, so much of the so much of the struggle right now in the Middle East is also happening in that framework of like. I mean, even the the difference between Jews and Arabs, if you looked at it from a hundred thousand feet, you'd be like. Both Abrahamic religions, both Semitic people.
1: You guys agree a thousand percent on the consumption of swine issue. You
0: you pray at the same temple. It's just one of you prays at the bottom and one of you (laughs) prays at the top.
2: If you have thoughts about the reductivism of this show, uh, feel free to send us an email using the subject line Friendly Fire Reductivism, and we'll be able to uh, sort that into its own folder really help us out.
0: (laughs) we're gonna adam why don't you read those and condense them uh, (laughs) i'm
2: gonna gonna give you a phone book a a spiral bound book to review (laughs) (laughs) guys this was the first film that was actually commissioned by its government for its production and i think we may be able to agree on this one thing that you know because it is it does have that kind of commission that it is a form of propaganda do you think it succeeded as that sort of thing in light of its ambiguous ending
1: well, i think if uh if it was taken up by other rebels around the world as a as a favorite film then that's certainly something you can count as a success
2: but like does it matter what the what the goal of the propagandist is like was that the stated goal of the Algerian government in commissioning the film? Like, hey, this this might be an exportable idea. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: know. I mean, I, it definitely to me reads as a film that is f- primarily for people outside of Algeria. Like, they they do a lot of like explaining the geography of Algiers, and there's a camera pan right at the beginning that shows like the French Quarter and then panning up to the Kasbah. And I, I don't think you need to do that that'd be like uh, explaining that manhattan is a big city or something
2: (laughs) that seems incredibly generous to think that algeria would do this for the benefit of the world instead of as a time capsule for its own people which is sort of the way that i took it
1: i mean like our country does this all the time like like makes things and puts them out into the rest of the world that are about what america is and what it what it represents
0: yeah like magic mike (laughs) yeah exactly mostly magic mike (laughs)
1: Captain America: Civil War, <laughs> one of my favorite Civil War films. Is Civil that on
2: the list? <laughs>
0: it is now. I, I'm inclined to agree with with Ben in that I think probably, I mean, it's. I think there were uh, when they were making the film, there was a lot of push and pull between the Algerians who were working from a from a memoir by one of their leaders. Um, and incidentally, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but th- but that character, the kind of the leader within the Casbah, Jafar, Jafar was an actual leader of the FL. The, the, the actor who played him was an actual leader of the FLN during the revolution. He was playing a character based on himself. That very man, that actor is still alive and is still in the Algerian government. He sits in their parliament. Wow. So to an Algerian audience, he is very recognizable, very famous uh, revolutionary who became an actor, who became a Oh, this a is politician. the guy who wrote
1: the book. I didn't make that
0: connection. He. Yeah. It's, this is his story. Yeah. This is his autobiography.
1: You got to have a lot of sway to convince your government to part with $800,000 to make
0: a feature
1: film about how great
0: you were. Right, and he's he he would have had a lot of um, motivation to make this a this yeah. film very heroic about himself and his struggle, and in fact, it's it doesn't come out that way. He he is he's portrayed as as much of a questionable sure. figure as anybody. Although that first bombing scene where the the French police captain and his friends go in and bomb somebody's house, it's it's set up, I think, as the act that from then on precipitates every bit of violence on the part of the FLN. It's justified by this like three minutes that we watch. I mean, I had to look away at a certain point cause it's like, yeah. all right, I get it. You know, you guys are pulling dead babies out of the, out of the house. Like I don't need to, I don't need to drink the, the whole <laughs> soup here.
2: Were you surprised that Ali stayed in the, stayed in the hole and allowed himself to be blown up?
0: are you saying it's a little bit of a uh, do the right thing ending where you're like what are,
2: <laughs> i don't get it i wonder if in that moment he realized his life would be more valuable as a symbol or martyr than it would be for him to be taken alive was that what motivated him in that moment hmm. because man like it's pretty fucking bleak to be tiled into a hole in the wall with a couple of kids and, you know, make that decision for them. Pretty brutal.
1: It's uh, Yeah, it's an act that is, like, senseless from one angle and brave from another angle. Like, it's, it is kind of the end of Do the Right Thing.
0: A lot of movies like this, you get, the, you get this character, right? The street guy who becomes a Buddha almost. But in the case of Ali, I never saw him rise above his teenage violence. He was always the one in the film that was just like, we need to go in there now and blow him up. And there were, someone else was always the voice of reason. So in that last scene, I was really conflicted because there was a part of me that was seeing what you're saying, Adam, like, oh, this is like a, this is the moment where he finally does become a martyr but i also felt like there was a sour taste where it was just like oh no he's just a dummy right and he doesn't know what to do in this situation so he just just stays there and and not only is blown up but takes these other three people with him i mean he does say like you guys can go if you want and they all say no which is a you know the ultimate movie trope in that situation but i felt like if he had actually become a leader right he would have said you guys get out i command you
1: i wonder if this is where the propaganda comes into the movie because like i you know i don't think that uh i'm not arguing here that the french were acting honorably in this situation but in the real incident this guy died in along with 20 people in a in this house and I guess we have to take the word of the French for it that they actually did give him this choice to come out, right?
0: Given that this is based on the autobiography of one of the principal actors, you would think in a situation like that that he would have mounted a pretty large protest if, in fact, what happened was the French came in and blew everybody up while they were sleeping. Uh, But, you know, I don't know what compromises were
1: made. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't know like if they had some disagreement that, you know, he wanted to put himself out ahead of people that think that thing or whatever. I mean, it's sort of like the, you know, taking out a terrorist leader with a drone of its era, like blowing up an entire house because one guy you want is in there.
0: I think that happens a lot. (laughs) That even happened in Philadelphia. Ultimately, like this kind of armed struggle for the survival of your people or for the freedom of your people, I mean, it it reoccurs so often in our world. It has characterized my entire life. Like because this was the argument throughout the 70s and 80s for Ireland, for Basque country, for Palestine,
1: South Africa.
0: Right. It ebbs and flows. Uh, there are times when the when the spirit in the air is of. Internationalism, and we're saying, Oh no, what we need to do is eliminate borders, and we need to just have like a North American free trade zone, and that that is seen as the progressive cause. But then at other times, you're in a situation where it's like, No, the Kurds need their own nation, and that's going to require that we carve some land out of Turkey, and we carve some land out of Iran, and we carve some land out of Iraq. And we, because those people need self-determination and we need to give them their own, the land that belongs to them traditionally is going to be the nation of Kurdistan. And that's the only way we're ever going to have peace and justice there. And, you know, in the course of my own life, that argument is, is it's very hard to ever land on a thing and say, this is the principle because based on, based on that principle of self, determination you know that principle can be used to argue that barcelona should be a separate capital city and that catalonia should be its own nation and is that the plan for the world that we divide up into ever increasingly small countries determined by our our vision of ourselves separate from others as, a, as an individual race or an individual culture or individual. Yeah,
1: religion. like is that, is that like a good goal to pursue?
0: Yeah, is that the thing that we are? Because it's one thing to say like we are freeing ourselves from the shackles of our colonial oppressors, France. But at a certain point, like as someone viewing this narrative throughout the 20th century, like are because if you're appealing to the United Nations, which is an attempt to have a governing body of all the nations of the world create a kind of global parliament, you're also participating in the spirit of of a trend toward globalism and against nationalism.
1: I think the idea behind the United Nations, like people suspicious of it have always thought that it was about becoming a world government, but it's really about multilateralism and preventing World War Three. like... The main goal there is provide a forum for countries to talk it out instead of, you know, getting into an arms race with each other.
0: In the short term, but like long term, I just keep picturing Clarence Clemens and George Carlin in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure.
3: It's you. Yeah. It's us.
0: Doing the the like guitar arm sweep of the wild stallions which was the music that brought all people together (laughs) and I imagine that either that's our ambitious goal or that every that we kind of see the see the larger project as letting every tribe have self-determination down to the level of each individual group of five families that wants to separate themselves from the rest of King County.
1: Well, I think if Ali LaPointe had lived long enough, he would have really appreciated the music of Wild Stallions.
0: <laughs>
2: Fair listener, you will never hear another podcast ever draw a line between the Battle of Algiers and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure.
1: I guess what we're just trying to say, guys, is whatever side of the political spectrum you fall on, be excellent to each other. <laughs>
2: Uh, do we want to uh, move on to who's your guy? Was there a moment of pedanticness that you wish to call out? You know, I didn't find too much.
1: the The one that I found is not really so much a moment of pedantry as uh, as just kind of an interesting fact. And I already mentioned it, which is that the uh, the tanks that we see in the riot scenes at the end of the film are Soviet su 100 tank destroyers and not the french tanks that you would have seen there um and they were like on loan from the algerian military because the algerian military buys all its weapons from russia a a very minor quibble that some nerd had with this film
2: (laughs) uh did you guys like this movie
1: oh yeah we need to give it a, a rating adam what's our rating system gonna be
2: you know, this this is a film and a setting that gives value to things that that don't have an intrinsic value on their own. And one of the the biggest examples of this is the use of a basket. The basket is a container for an explosive specifically. So I'm gonna give my rating system on a scale of baskets. <laughs> and for the Battle of Algiers, I will uh assign a rating of three point five baskets. I thought it was uh academically and historically a great movie but uh but less satisfying than other war films that i've seen which is why i would not give it a higher rating personally less satisfying why sort of in a way that i was trying to articulate earlier like i wanted to root for someone but i couldn't because everything and everyone was so ugly and uh and desperate like i saw I saw Nobility in the Cause, but this is not a feel-good movie, and I suppose maybe I should and could adjust my expectations going into what we know are going to be war movies throughout this project that we're doing. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, you know, on a, on a film level, there is something to be said about the enjoyment of, of the consumption of a film, and I think that means something, especially in... And how I choose to rate a film. That is why it is 3.5 baskets out of five for me.
1: Uh, I'm going to go four baskets myself. Uh, I mean, it's a great example of neorealist cinematography. And it's interesting to see a film, like a feature film, that is not done with sync sound. Um, That is a hard thing to do that used to be the way it was done that was fun for the film nerd and me and uh, like i've 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 felt myself very connected to the story and very interested to see what would happen next and i thought that the like the courage the film had in showing both sides as being flawed was of refreshing you know like the yeah like we have watched so many films where the bad guys are faceless and anonymous and you know up on a hill somewhere that we're taking pot shots at and you really get to know the two counterpoints in this and uh i thought that, that was that was great and, uh, and something we don't have enough examples of in the history of war cinema yeah
0: there there was The idea of the anonymous soldier actually kinda played both ways in this film. There were a lot of anonymous French bullies, but also a lot of anonymous Algerian faces right throughout the film. We were just we were greeted with a lot of crowds to try to to see through. We we got to know a lot more Algerians than we did French, but the French cause was definitely like articulated pretty well. I feel like I'm going to give it three and a half baskets, too. I, I liked it as a film. I really liked, I'm surprised you guys didn't mention it, but, but the use of, like, a shallow focal depth was uh, very cool in a couple of, like, in those poorly lit inside scenes. There was a, a lot of time where things were out of focus or focus would go from one character to another in a way that I th- thought was both cool in a kind of faux journalistic way and also just like very good storytelling. They weren't afraid to have things out of focus in this movie, which is so different from the hyper clean, infinite focus of, of (laughs) a lot of modern films. I liked the claustrophobia of it and the, the complicated politics. I think, I think it would have been a better movie if they had done a, a little bit more For the international viewer, in terms of setting up the dynamic of the movie, like certainly in Italy and France and Algeria, I feel like everybody who went to see this movie would have already known a lot of the backstory. But it also feels like this movie was made for a real international audience that might not have even been able to find Algeria on a map. And there could have been a little bit more on the front and the back to just put the whole story in a little bit better context and there i guess there just wasn't any way to keep because it's 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 the rare film that's being made certainly within 10 years but but a lot less in some cases you know six to eight years after the events depicted yeah and being made by the partially funded by the government of the Protagonists, the nominal protagonists, including a member of the parliament who is also starring in the film. Like it's impossible to keep some amount of heavy handedness out of it, I think. But the, but the heavy handedness that is in it graded against the attempts that they were making to be completely like above the fray. Like there were, there were so many instances where they were giving a real measured take on it and then the immediately next, the immediate next scene would be like violins <laughs> going, and you know the heroic revolutionaries like dying victorious deaths, and it was just like there was, there was a little bit of a, a cognitive disconnect for me. So
2: yeah, three point seven five <laughs> baskets, I
1: guess. Rounded up final. a little bit. All that's right. three
2: baskets, a half a basket, mm-hmm. and then a the little mm-hmm. handle. <laughs>
0: Then, yeah, then like one of those little little tiny baskets. Sure. <laughs> it's a basket with a bomb in it and then a littler basket with a little dog in it. And then the dog has a little basket in its mouth that has some treats. Like an MAD. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, this film was willing to kill men, women, and children, but you don't see any animals die. That was, that was one line too far, this film. Yeah. Not killing any puppies.
0: Uh, did you have a guy? Dudes?
1: Um, yeah, hard to find a guy in this movie. I think I'll give mine to Halima, one of the three bomber ladies. Um, she's the one that went to the discotheque. The one that actually looked as nervous as I think one would be in doing something like this. It was one of the like few laughs I had in the movie when she was trying to look like nonchalant as she... Stooped behind a potted plant in the in the back corner of the disco, and, and uh, dropped her purse. Uh, she just like had no poker face, and I really identified with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no chip. Yeah. Uh, how about you, John? Well, I was actually considering her being my guy too, but I think I think my guy is the young married couple who very early on in the film. Uh, their wedding is presented as an example of a kind of thing that has to happen in secret because i don't know why right this is part of the problem of this of of the backstory
1: yeah it's like this is an act of resistance but it's not it's not shown what the other option is
0: yeah like i don't know did the french prohibit people from marrying i can't imagine that that would be true and as it, the way it was set up, like, okay, we're having this marriage as an act of resistance. I thought, oh, it's going to be like a formal Islamic wedding, which is forbidden somehow by the colonial power, right? That's the normal story. But then in fact, it was a completely civil wedding ceremony, like sign here, yeah. sign here. Okay, you're married. I was like, what kind of, that seems also very <laughs> French, like not, I don't understand how, what the context is here, but- But they were such a beautiful young couple and I thought through the entire film, oh, well, that wedding was just a way of establishing the FLN was building a separate government or a separate world of institutions uh, underground. And then that couple appears again at the very end of the movie because she's the one that's hiding them behind the behind the wall. And her husband, her beautiful young husband, who we have not seen at all, is one of the four people that dies in the wall with him. And one of the last shots is of her standing in the crowd while the um, while the yeah. colonel blows up the building with a single tear streaming down her face. And it's like, wow, did were there a lot of shots of these two like that ended up on the cutting room floor? Because at the beginning and the end of the movie, they play pretty prominent roles, but they sort of didn't, I didn't spend any time with them and I wanted to spend more time with them.
1: The rule in screenwriting is write characters that all think they're the star of the film. So uh, I feel like these these characters really mm-hmm. had an interesting, uh, an interesting story of their own.
2: Adam, got a guy? Yeah, my guy is uh, Ben Hamidi. Uh, he wasn't in the film very much. He didn't say a whole lot a lot like me in this episode of the podcast. But what he did say, I thought was really strong and powerful. There's a moment like after his capture where they do something really interesting with him in that they subject him to a press conference. Yeah. And the idea of that just blew me away. The novelty of that, like, wow, journalists are asking him questions about what his deal is. And in response to one of those questions he has one of the great lines in the movie about about using baskets and trading them for bombers and uh he was super efficient in how thoughtful his dialogue was in what little screen time he got and i really appreciated his character for that reason and also the novelty of the moment it was interesting it was a different kind of interrogation you know I, I mean that
0: was one of the things that i uh, one of the small details that I really loved the idea that there once was a time when a when a military spokesperson would not be a spokesperson but would actually be the commanding officer and that he would be willing to take pretty candid questions from a press corps, give philosophical answers, and then also allow his prisoners yeah like the commander of the prisoners to have his own press conference where he spoke candidly. (laughs) Like what happened to that world? I miss it. So I
1: think we've come to the part of the show where we select a new movie to watch next week on our list. We currently have 54 entries.
2: Ben, I want to make sure Captain America: Civil War has been added to that list. Uh,
1: okay, we have fifty. Oh my
2: god,
0: fifty-five entries.
2: <laughs>
0: you know, there's actually a feature film about this same battle, starring Anthony Quinn. Really? That I discovered watching this, and it would, and I, and from what I understand, the feature film is also not. It has some moral ambiguity to it, so. It might be interesting to track that down and and add it to the list just to see uh, contrast. What is it called? It has a pretty generic name like uh, Commander of the Battle or Battalion, <laughs> Battalion Go or something. I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember things like that. It's hard for me to remember your guys' names. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Feelings mutual, John.
0: Yeah, I know. But you just said my name and I couldn't <laughs> remember yours.
1: I got a full night's sleep last night, so...
0: Uh, all right, let's pick s- film number 26. Film number
1: 26 is a Vietnam War film from 2006 directed by Werner Herzog, Rescue Dawn. Oh, okay. dear. John, you put okay. this on the
0: list. Can you defend this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rescue Dawn. Um, You know, I'm going to... I'm going to let Rescue Dawn kind of speak for itself. <laughs> it stars Christian Bale. Yeah, it sure does.
1: And, uh,
0: um, you know, Werner Herzog obviously is a uh, divisive figure. But, uh, and, and Christian Bale even.
2: In that there is only one side to Werner Herzog fandom and, and that's the right side. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan or wrong? Big fan or dead to me.
0: well so in this case then i we're going in with the uh with with adam already having taken aside have you seen this movie adam i have not no how shaken are you going to be if uh if rescue dawn is the is the first chink in werner herzog's armor
2: well the werner herzog oeuvre is like 80 films long so i i would totally expect him to have a couple of clunkers here and there it won't damage Mm -hmm. his credibility to me if this is not one of the greats but what a combination christian bale Werner herzog how could it not Mm -hmm. be at least okay i would imagine you didn't nominate this film for for pod unless you you liked it you wouldn't you wouldn't hate nominate it would you
1: i've hate nominated a few
2: really <laughs> yeah absolutely i think that there should i think
1: that this list is only effective if there are ones we don't want to watch on it
2: oh interesting All right. like
1: pearl well, harbor they're... or captain america civil war <laughs> that's right i did oh, really put pearl
2: not. harbor on there uh for that reason yeah i'm yeah. really not looking forward to watching pearl harbor
1: 13 hours the benghazi film from michael bay is also on the
0: list so Oof. oh no there be dragons guys the Benghazi film well this movie is a you know this one is based on a true story and it's another example of a war movie that doesn't it's not just like uh John Wayne in the Green Berets it's it's told from from a different perspective and one that puts the war film in a I mean we're we're drawing a big 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 square around what constitutes a war movie (laughs) and uh and I think that's that's fun and and uh and interesting to me and this is another example of like you know of a of a movie that's uncomfortable to watch and also like extends for us the franchise of of all of this what it what's going on in our depictions of war what we're doing what we're getting out of it as filmmakers as viewers why we do this why we're so drawn to depicting war and so this is just another this is another notch on our guitar.
1: <laughs> well, that'll be our film next week. Looking forward to it. Until then, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. Au funky! allez, les alertes. Spoiler.
0: Quel dommage. <laughs> <laughs>
3: wow. Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast, and it's hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmer. If you want to continue the conversation on social media, please use the hashtag Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin A.H.R. Adam is at Cut for Time, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K Schulte. You can also join in the discussion over at the Friendly Fire Podcast subreddit or the Friendly Fire group on Facebook. Please support the production of Friendly Fire by going to maximumfun.org/donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Say something. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.